Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. I need to start out by saying I made a very stupid and very embarrassing mistake in the opening of the podcast this week and said the wrong day that I'll be over at the new Brooklyn Video Games location. I got the date right but the day wrong. I was having a a weird day. I'm sorry. I don't usually make such huge mistakes like that. But if anybody's around the Brooklyn area this Saturday the 19th, so the day after this goes public to everybody, um, I'll be there in the afternoon. I think I'm going to do a live stream in the uh, morning, early afternoon, and then head straight over to the new Brooklyn Video Games location. I'll put their Twitter account in the the description here for anybody who wants to check them out. But it's going to be like my first official hangout since life has been restarting so i'm really looking forward to seeing whoever has the time to stop by but either way it's it's looking to be a very cool place if it's even half as cool as brooklyn video games then uh, it should turn out to be a very nice store so i'll be down there on saturday saturday if, if anybody's in the new york area and wants to check out a cool game store and hang out or something but anyway let's uh let's jump into the questions First up, over on the YouTube support service, Scotter140 said they just saw a video about playing PlayStation 1 games on a PlayStation 2 via USB. Is this a good alternative to a PlayStation 1 with an ODE, or is there a downside I'm missing? So I skimmed the video really quick. I didn't have the chance to watch the whole thing, but it looks like a tutorial on how to get PopStarter working. And PopStarter is a software emulator on the PS2 that allows you to play PS1 games. And whenever you do the soft mods like that, um, you have to use PopStarter. You can't run an ISO just like a, as if it was a disc. Whereas if you put in a physical disc into a PlayStation 2, it'll run the PlayStation 1 games in hardware backward compatibility mode with only a few pieces of it being in software. So generally speaking, um, I don't recommend it just because it's not as accurate as playing the original. I've heard mixed feelings from people. I've heard some people love Pop Starter, but I've always found it to be a ridiculous pain to set up. Uh, other people think I'm stupid for saying that, but I just... I, it's nothing like using an ODE. There's nothing drop your files and plug about it. It's much more complicated and it's not as accurate. Now, one could argue that different versions of the PlayStation 2 played PlayStation 1 games differently. So there is no perfect solution. But generally speaking, if you buy a known good model of a PS2 and you put in a PS1 disc, it's going to work fine. Most people would never notice the differences for most games, whereas you might notice some differences with Pop Starter. So... I mean, if you have some time to kill and you like nerdy projects, give it a try and see what you think, and maybe you'll have some feedback, and maybe you'll enjoy it. Maybe it'll be totally good enough for the games that you want to play. But if you're looking for a really solid and easy solution, I don't think that's it. I don't think there's been any you know, super big updates in the past couple months. But as always, if I'm wrong, let me know. Over on Floatplane, the importer said they've been wanting to use their original SNES and Genesis controllers on their Mr. for a while, but the Damon Byte products have been out of stock for months. 
They also know about the USB hub for the blister version 2 and the RafNet adapters, but they didn't want to invest in those for different reasons. So they decided to bite the bullet and order a dual SNES and a dual Genesis adapter, both made by Mayflash, figuring that in the worst case scenario, they could just return them. And to their surprise, even the Mr. Add-on sheet said that they only have about three or three to four milliseconds of average latency, which is great. Um, they perform very well. They're pulling off jumps in retro platformers without any issues. So that left them pondering how much of a difference would have the Damon Bright products made if they could have been able to purchase them. They're playing on a CRT. I don't know if anybody would notice a difference. Um, I don't think I don't think measurably you, you would ever notice a difference of four milliseconds of latency versus one millisecond. I think in my mind, I would confidently visualize them both as zero. Now, on top of that, though, um, I do always recommend, if possible, people get the lowest latency stuff because things tend to add up. So like... Let's say you have the four millisecond lag instead of the one, and then you have to use a frame buffer on Mr. because you're using a weird core, like one of the Game Boy cores, uh, and then you're going into your flat panel, which is an older one that has two and a half frames of lag. Like, all of that stuff just adds up. So while I would never, ever, ever say four milliseconds of lag is too much in any scenario other than light guns or something... Um, I would absolutely say whenever you have a chance to get the lowest latency adapter out there, which is the uh, Damon Byte one. I don't know for sure, but I think they might be um, looking to to make it easier to get those. Um, I've spoke to Mick once or twice about it, so hopefully those will be much easier to purchase soon. Fingers crossed. But, uh, you know, I would generally say get those if possible, just because it's the lowest. But all of the other options are good. Um, I've used the RafNets before, and I've always had good experience with those. So uh, overall, um, I don't think it would have made any difference for you whatsoever. Zero difference. I don't think you would ever notice. Uh, now, there are some bad solutions out there. Like if you went to one of the crappy Bluetooth dongles or something, now you're talking two frames of lag variable. Yes, that would make a difference. But the ones that you mentioned, no. So I think what you did is totally fine. Uh, you should use those with confidence. Uh, and if anybody's listening that's looking to buy these, I would just always start with whatever's rated as the lowest lag and, and move up from there just based on who has it in stock. Fabian Schneider said, when messing around with sync polarity and 15 kilohertz mode lines, is this safety relevant? They've read that HV sync polarity can tell the TV what aspect ratio the picture is, but in other places they've seen people using negative H sync or negative V sync for TV modes no matter what. So this is starting to get into territory that I'm not confident enough explaining because I barely have a, a grasp on it myself. So I'd rather not like fudge my way through an answer, but I will kind of give you the cop-out general example in that if you're talking about your average retro gaming console scenario, so you grab a Genesis or Super Nintendo and an RGB SCART cable and you plug it through a SCART switch into a SCART device like the Retro Tanks, the OSSC, uh, FrameMeister, etc., you don't even have to think about this stuff. It's just not something you ever have to worry about, and I wouldn't worry at all. But when you start talking about things like video production monitors or going into specific equipment or, more importantly, some very weird sources, old computers, old things that, um, that don't exactly match what you would get from an average console signal... If you're worried about any of that, I would just check out all of the spec sheets. So the consoles and the target device, and just make sure there's nothing in there that seems strange. Um, but once again, I don't want to just fudge through an answer that doesn't really 
make sense or I might get anything wrong. So I'd rather just stick to generalizations. Really sorry for the, the cop out. I just don't want to give bad advice. But I'm sure there's places out there where you can get more information. I just have a feeling the answers out there are going to be super technical. So hopefully somebody's broken it down somewhere in an easy way. Bradley ran into issues with a Sega Saturn not being able to power both the Satiator and the Rad 2X, and was wondering if the retro community, when they make these devices, should be publishing the power requirements, because there's so many internal mods now, eventually the stock power supplies might not be able to keep up. So I do think that would be a neat thing for people to just publish that, but I do think that it's I'm just guessing that your scenario is you had the one model Sega Saturn that was known to have power issues, and that should be one of those cases, one of the rare cases where upgrading your internal power supply might be a benefit. I usually just recommend those for region mods and stuff, but there were a few models, or maybe just one model of the Saturn that had weird power issues. Um, It was the same thing with the mode and people trying to use hard drives instead of SSDs. I think, I'm pretty sure that was it. But it wasn't all Sega Saturns. It was just a specific model revision. This is off the top of my head. I'm pretty sure I'm remembering this right, but it's been a weird week for me. Who knows? But I think that's kind of the issue. So while, yes, I agree, I think companies should be publishing specs just to make things easier for people's total setups. In the case that you described, um, it's not generally something that the developers might have been able to see. So, uh, you know, when Professor Abrasive was testing the Satiator, he was probably not testing it with any powered cable like an HD Retrovision or a Rad 2X. Um, And at the same time, when those companies were making those devices, they weren't testing something that adds or draws more power like that. Because generally speaking, when you have optical drive emulation, you're drawing far less power than the original drive would, especially when the disc is actually spinning. So that would never be an issue in that case. So while I guess the short answer to your question is, yeah, it'd be neat if uh, people published all of these power requirement specs just you know, just for posterity. But I think you just ran into a very strange situation that's not going to be that common. Um, And it's really more of a Saturn-related problem than the accessories. But I could be wrong on that one, but that's certainly just how I feel about it right now. Logan said they're thinking about getting some cases for their cartridge-based games. Are there any sellers they should look into or stay away from, or maybe any types of cases to look out for that don't want to damage their carts in any way? Well, if you're just looking for those clear protective cases, like those universal game cases and stuff like that, I'm not sure there was ever a chance of damage. I don't think anybody ever reported chunks being taken out of their cartridge or anything. So, um, And if they did, I certainly never heard about it. But I think I would just look more into price, because I know a bunch of stores were selling them, and then the price was wildly different. Uh, But that could just be when they bought them, because obviously if a store paid one price for them, like I'm going to pull random numbers out. If a store paid $100 each for something, so they sell them for $125, and another store paid $75 each, so they sell them for $100, you know, it's not really the store's fault. It just kind of is what it is. But I guess I'd like to ask the community, is anybody listening aware of good places to currently get these universal game cases? Have there been any problems? Is there the cheapest place to get? Um, I just, I kind of think you should, you know, if you, if you have a place local, like I believe Video Games New York sells them, if you got a local place, support local and see if you could pick up some there. If not, maybe just try to get a bulk order somewhere, but I definitely don't have any links, otherwise I'd, I'd happily share them. So hopefully somebody listening might be able to help. 
Inmate 320 said they decided to get an Otaku Games 6-in, 3-out SCART switch so they could connect all their consoles and also have multiple outputs, one into the SCART input of a CRT TV and the other one going into one of those cheap scalers I say uh, never use for gaming, but uh, it's uh, for the purpose of going into a capture device, which is the perfect use for that thing. It's not the best quality. It's got a lot of lag. It processes some images wrong. None of which really matter if you're just doing casual streaming. So perfect use for that device. What they're having trouble with is knowing what to get, considering they have plans for streaming and downscaling eventually. The TV has three SCART ports in back, from which only one takes RGB, and there's also composite and S-video inputs in the front panel. So this should be fairly easy. Uh, if you want that switch, just make sure that none of your SCART cables have sync strippers in them. Generally speaking, if your cables are bought in the past few years, the only time you would run into that is with the PlayStation 1, um, and you just don't need it. You could just remove it, check out that video I always talk about. Uh, you probably, uh, actually, I think you would just need to remove it and connect sync directly, and that would really be it. I'll post a link to the review I did of that switch, uh, but as long as you're using regular cables, that should be okay. Um, as far as going into your TV, I would just plug it with a standard SCART cable right in. Um, just to be clear, you mentioned CRT TV. So yeah, that should be totally fine. If you were talking about like a PAL flat panel that had a SCART input, I would suggest not because every TV I've ever tested has processed the image analog signals wrong through the analog inputs and added a ton of lag. There's some exceptions to that, but that's it's a safe rule to follow. Whereas on the opposite side, for your streaming side, whatever, it doesn't matter because you know there could be a second of lag on your stream. It doesn't affect the stream. So I think that's pretty much it. I'll leave a link to my review if you want to check that out just to make sure on the safety side of things, but it should be pretty straightforward. Just use the Otaku switch for RGB SCART and then pick up a different switch if you want to use S-Video and Composite that's located in the front of your TV. Tony wanted to chime in on the comment about the Game Boy interface scaling output from last week. Before investing a lot of money on an external scaling solution, the person who asked the question might want to look at the options available for customizing the Game Boy interface's output. Uh, Tony left a pretty good explanation of what to do when setting things up through something like uh, a GC video adapter. Coincidentally enough, I'm wor working on a post today about the RetroTank 5X's new firmware update that adds a new mode that scales very specifically just the GBI 320 output to 6X. So that way you could get a lot more of the screen filled. It's a very cool feature. So um, there's lots of ways to do it. Uh, I really appreciate the um, uh, what you added. I'll try to add that to the description as well. Uh, so lots of good stuff for Game Boy Interface and Game Boy nowadays. Jason Guffey said they have a monitor with both VGA and BNC connections for RGBHV and was wondering if there's a substantial benefit to try one or the other. Uh, no, should be fine. If you see a difference with one or the other, it could be the cable that you're using. Um, it could be adapters that you're using, or I guess if it's an older monitor, pop it open, maybe see how it's wired on the inside. But generally speaking, just discussing between a VGA and a BNC connector, there shouldn't be any difference whatsoever. 
Also, for the Retro Tank 5X, they're using the VGA Discart made by Mike Chi, so they're wondering what they should use for HDMI devices. Um, a Tendac adapter or one of the lag-free HDMI to component video converters. Uh, I don't think it matters. So that's in that context, it would be HDMI console running 480p through one of these converters into the RetroTINK 5X, and I think whatever is easiest for your setup. I have um, you know the the HD15 Discart was just released, and I use this just because it's the least amount of cables and clutter, and I'm working with like a two by two foot space here. So not even, it's like three foot by one and a half or something. So I need the smallest amount of space possible, but if you have good wiring, it's probably gonna come out the same. Um, the next question comes from a recent cable video. Is there a way to shield RF? Uh, yeah, I'm sure there is, but I just, uh, you know, there's so much more to it because even if you try to get the best RF cable possible coming from the console right into your TV, you still have all of the interference around it because it's more of a broadcast signal and less of a video signal. I'm generalizing, so video experts don't get too mad at me for skipping over this, but it's just, it's not something I would take a lot of time to do. Um, I think uh, just kind of dealing with it unless you live in a city and you're never going to move out of a city and you're having a lot of problems you there's probably different things you could do you could probably build a box that's lined with aluminum foil or something and leave it in there but generally speaking i i, I wouldn't obsess about that too much because there's just so much involved in our when you're using rf and last uh just out of curiosity, what do I think something like 480i games on a PS2, as an example, would be the best picture we could possibly have? Um, honestly, it really is up to your eyes. Um, I've seen PlayStation 2 480i games on those HD CRTs. So those generally, especially the Sony ones, upscale everything they get to 1080i. So you start out with an interlaced image that's then scaled to still an interlaced image. I've seen those look absolutely incredible. Like, holy crap good. Um, I've also seen them run through RetroTank 2X with the filter on and have it look pretty good. Um, obviously through the RetroTank 5X it looks decent as well. I've seen some scenarios where you, you mess with the output resolution to mix your flat panel TV scaler with whatever you're using. But generally speaking, it's whatever works well for your eyes. And I think a lot of people might agree that just 480i direct into a CRT is also an excellent look as well. So it's really up to you. I know that's kind of a cop-out, but it's it's the honest truth. But if you have the ability to pick up for free or cheap one of those HD CRTs and for, uh, PS2 480i games are one of your favorites and your go-to, you might really love it. There's not much else that TV would be excellent at, but I think you might like it just for PS2. So if you have a lot of extra space and the ability to get one to try, definitely do it. If you don't have a lot of extra space and you don't want to lug around giant monitors just for an experiment, probably not worth your time and effort, but just my thoughts. Tony wants to know if I know of a cheap VGA to component video converter. They have a RetroTINK 5X with an Extron Crosspoint connected to it, and all their older consoles are connected using component video. The only oddball is the Dreamcast, which they paired with a RetroBit VGA box they bought a while back. Obviously, the go-to would be the HD RetroVision Dreamcast cable, which we've all been waiting for since the dawn of time. Uh, but I think a decent solution to hold you over might be something like a RetroAccess SCART cable to the RetroTINK uh, RGB to Comp, 
that's something where you could always use that one or you could upgrade to the HD retrovisions. I don't know if I'd call it an upgrade, but it certainly would be a, a space saving upgrade. And then just use that converter as like a basic, um, like just a tool in your toolbox, I guess is the better way to describe it. So that's certainly something you could do. If you already have a VGA box or a VGA cable, you could try to look into something like, um, I think LinuxBot 3000 might make converters like that. Check their eBay store and see. Uh, and that's pretty much it. Um, you could go VGA to HDMI and HDMI to component, but I mean, at that point, I would say get the retro access cable and the RGB to comp. So that's pretty much it. Uh, I think that's about as good as you're going to get with something like that. Um, you know, the only other thing you could do is get a cheap, instead of getting the retro access one because they're out of stock, you could get a cheap retro bit Dreamcast VGA cable and use the HD15 to start through the RGB to comp. Um, or I, yeah, yeah, I guess that would probably be it. So all decent options. None of them are easy. The easiest would just be HD retrovision cables, but we're all waiting on those. Gord Captain wants to know if it's safe to keep two different things plugged into both the component video and SCART ports of the RetroTank 5X at the same time so they could switch between them on the RT5X without having to unplug them. Um, yeah, it should be 100% safe. I wouldn't leave both consoles powered on at the same time. I've done it for demos and testing, and I guess that would be fine, but as a general rule, I wouldn't power on more than one thing going into something else at the same time. So yeah, it, it would be 100% safe in the normal use scenario of you only turn on your consoles when you're using them, and you're just leaving them all plugged in and switch between inputs. On top of that, you can, if you're using something like S-Video and Component, use Y cables to combine their audio there could be some audio quality issues, but there's no safety issues with that. So that would be safe to do if you wanted to as well. But I think in that scenario, probably figuring out different switches might actually be better. But the one you mentioned, SCART and component video, yeah, totally safe to leave them both plugged in. Felicia Rondo had an interesting question about mixing audio for a Tower of Power, the Genesis, Sega CD, and 32X. They were interested in hooking up a triple bypass for their Model 1 Sega Genesis and wanted to know if it's worth it to keep the Model 1's DIN so that they could use the Sega Genesis 1 Stereo 32X patch cable from Retro Access. So there's two answers to this question. From an overall workflow point of view and you know how tidy something is i love leaving that genesis 2 din on the triple bypass uh, you know it requires you to remove the rf which if you want a stock look of the console that ruins the stock look but you don't have to cut any plastic it fits right into place and it will mix all audio properly now if you did want to do something like go from the front headphone jack and then use the original DIN, you would have to do the extra mod for the Model 1 that routes audio back to the headphone jack as well. And that would totally work. Uh, that's a little more effort to do that mod. And, you know, it's something that may or may not be worth it depending on what look you're going for. As far as performance goes it should be pretty much the same other otherwise you know you just have to leave the volume turned up on the headphone jack whereas you don't have to worry about anything if it's coming from the rear din and the only other thing to mention is you you mentioned routing stereo to the audio jacks in the back of the sega cd so that's not necessary for audio. I'll get into a bit of the nerdiness in a second, but if you're just talking about making sure to get all audio channels from the Genesis 1, the Sega CD, and the 32X, just plug everything in. 
that was something that I wrote up in, I think, the Sega CD page on the website that kind of went into the reason why Sega wrote, wrote the manuals and kind of came out as if you had to use the RCA jacks. And that was more of a marketing thing. Like, hey, parents, this incredibly expensive CD drive that you know we're trying to get you to buy your kids can also be used as a hi-fi CD player. So I think they pushed that just as a way to market it and say, now it's easier to get stereo audio out of your Genesis, and it's also a CD player, and you could also set it up this way. Now, Using MD Fourier and a couple of uh, awesome community members with insanely sharp ears have figured out there is less filtering coming out of the RCA jacks. And this is one of these things where now you're starting to get into the audiophile territory of crazy, which I mean that with love and respect, obviously. But now it's one of these things where if you do prefer that audio, you could try to make a custom cable that routes all of this stuff together. So you basically would do the Sega CD audio into the 32X and then just pull the, the full audio out of there. But I don't really know if that's something that's worth it. And when I say that, I'm talking from somebody who thinks it is worth it to do a triple bypass if you're an audiophile. So there's different levels that you could achieve of nerdiness in this. But as a general, I want to clean up the terrible video in my Model 1 Genesis. And oh, by the way, I know the audio is already totally fine, but here's a brand new circuit that's already been put together that bypasses a lot of the caps and circuitry on this 30-something-year-old motherboard, 40-year-old, whatever it is now. Um, that, you know, Might as well use the audio from the triple bypass as well. From that perspective, I would just use the DIN, uh, use a standard Model 2 32X cable to connect it into the 32X, and then just use a standard Genesis 2 cable to get audio out, and you would have the audio from all three. So you could blame Sega's marketing for this confusion. It should have been as easy as them leaving a note that says, don't worry about audio, it's already included, but you know how Sega was in the 90s. So hopefully that points you in the right direction. Earth to Brooks has a question about console power supplies and their amperage. And the general question is they have an original Genesis PSU that says 1.2 amps and another power supply that says 1.3 amps. Would that damage their console? And the answer is no. Sending an amperage rating isn't what it's sending. It's what it's available to provide. So in the context of gaming, if you have something that requires a 1.2 amp power supply, don't get a 1.0, don't get less, get 1.2 or greater. But you can get a 1.3, you can get a 5 amp, you can get a 1 million amp. It's not going to send the amperage. It's only available should the power or should the console need to pull that. So that's why the uh, a lot of the triads that we've been recommending as replacement power supplies are higher amperage than the originals. And that's a perfectly good thing to do. And in fact, some of them are such high amperage that you could actually power the full tower of power off of one of them. You would just need to use power adapter cables, which starts to get confusing. So you don't really have to ever worry about amps if it's equal to or greater. You do, of course, have to worry about uh, positive on the center side, you know, center positive or center negative. That's obviously something that's super important, and you don't want to send voltage to ground. That could kill stuff. Um, you want to make sure the barrel connector is the same size, because if it's a little too loose and you bump your console, you can get random power-offs while you're playing, and if it's too tight, you could damage the receptacle connector for it. Uh, but overall, if you're going to use a replacement power supply, especially now that we've determined which are really good quality, you should buy one of the good ones. They're not outrageously priced, but a lot of these ones you see like on Amazon or eBay, like for retro gaming, 
Those make me nervous. I would not trust those ever, ever with my old consoles. So I'll leave a link to the ones that we've determined are the safe ones to use. They're MD4EA rated. Uh, you could pick them up. If you're in the U.S., grab them from Castlevania with the correct adapters. If you're uh, overseas, I, I leave a link to Firebrand X's site where he shows the exact models for the international ones. So basically just follow the guide for a replacement. Click on the one that matches your console and you don't have anything to worry about. But to, um, to answer your question, directly no as long as the amperage is higher not lower than the original you're totally good to go a couple of questions from retro music dan first they wonder if i knew of a site like retro rgb but for audio actual transparent objective tested info rather than hyped up opinion pieces um no and when you go down the audio road you very often run into opinion only um, you know, there's a lot of people out there whose opinions are very respected because they earned that respect over many years of testing. Um, there's friends in the retro gaming scene whose ears are, are well-renowned, let's just say. Uh, but I, I don't know of one off the top of my head that uses actual tools for measurement, not just their ears, things like MD4EA, but I'm sure they exist. Or I'm sure there's a mix of sites that uh, have opinions with facts backing it up. That's what I try all of my personal posts on retro RGB to be is facts, links, my opinions below. So people could kind of come to their own conclusion, but if they're wondering where I stand on it, then it's there. So no, I don't, but um, I'm sure they're out there. So if anybody has suggestions, definitely post on that. Um, the next question specifically relates to streaming. Back in the day in the Smash and speedrunning communities, they'd record using a Dazzle or an Easy Cap. While not great by any standards, it still gets the job done for a fraction of the cost of the cheapest retro tank. When talking about streaming just for fun or streaming to try out, why does nobody talk about or recommend this anymore? Um, no, no clue. Uh, I think one of the issues is making sure that you get the right output. So maybe you could take something like a cable that provides composite video and S-video, then send composite to a CRT, send S-video to one of these boxes, or I guess reverse, whatever's easier, uh, and that would be fine. Don't use a Y cable with composite. I've seen a lot of people do that, and uh, that's never a good thing for your console. But I don't really know. Maybe they're just not... Um, Maybe they're just not available as much anymore, or if they are, maybe it's not as mainstream, but I just, I think you're right in that that might be something worth talking about, because when it comes to streaming, as long as there's no potential for safety, like just using a Y cable or something like that, if you just want to stream because you want to hang out virtually with your friends, then there's there really isn't a wrong answer. You know, I guess maybe spending too much money would be a wrong answer. You could look at it that way. But if it works and it's not hurting your equipment and it's not taking away from the experience that you have while you're gaming, anything's fine. So, I mean, that's obviously just my opinion, but it's kind of a strong opinion because so many times the point of streaming is hanging out with your friends while we're playing video games together virtually. And it's not to do archival footage or to put on a professional performance. It's just to hang out. So I agree. Um, you know, and it, if you know of uh, like a cheap place to still get them or anything like that, let me know and maybe I'll pick one up and do a quick video on it. But I do think that's a, a very viable scenario is a very cheap capture card. Um, and then just a, any CRT at all you could find with your original setup, you might be able to get all of that for, for pennies. Uh, side note relating to composite video quality, 
A few years ago, they bought three no-name composite cables with a Nintendo Multi out. The use case was for GameCubes running Melee on CRTs, and the image quality was absolute garbage. Really, really washed out and difficult to look at. They'd love to know how branded composite cables compared. Funny you mention that. I have a Sega Saturn that I, every time I use this crappy cable I got laying around, the composite video looks terrible. And I tried to clean it up for an example in, I think, one of my last videos, but the purpose of that wasn't it wasn't to show off composite video quality from a Saturn, so I didn't obsess over it too much. But I really want to look into why. You know, is that... And is this a good example of a bad composite video cable? So I guess if anybody has an official Saturn composite video cable laying around, I might even have one here still too. But um, someone in New York, if if somebody in New York has one laying around, or maybe, hey, Brooklyn Video Games might have one, I'll pick it up and compare it because I was really curious myself. Uh, and if that's the case, that would be a great example of why not to buy just cheap $1 cables. So uh, I, think I, I think I got all your questions and uh, good to talk to you. It's been a couple of years. Adam W. had a question about Virtual Boy Resolution. They know the system renders 384 by 224, but what's the intended aspect ratio? 4 by 3 or square pixels, 12 by 7? So that's an interesting question, and I don't know the exact answer off the top of my head, but I do have some pretty knowledgeable speculation, if you will. But Nintendo designed that console to be displayed on that display. And if that display is a standard LCD that has square pixels, then 12 by 7 would be the intended aspect ratio. If the display somehow changes the pixels, or if the pixels themselves are not square, then that would be an odd thing to figure out. But I don't think they had standard aspect ratios in mind when they made it, because they didn't have to. They controlled the games, they controlled the display, so everything was just what it needed to be to fill the screen in front of you. So my guess would be that square pixels would be the proper aspect ratio to play it in in order to match the original experience. So if anybody has more info on that, let me know. Uh, but I, that's, that's a, well, I think it's a pretty solid guess on there, but it is just a guess. Rasta Jedi has a couple of questions about RGB bypass mods for the Super Nintendo. They have a one-chip O2 and also got a mini, and they were looking to do a bypass and de-jitter combo on one, and maybe just a plain bypass on the other. So I have answers to your questions, but I also want to just put this out here as a, you know, just food for thought type of thing. The SNES Mini requires a mod for S-Video and RGB. As you know, otherwise you wouldn't have been asking it, but for anybody else listening. So for that one, doing the boardy bypass and the de-jitter would be a great solution. Or if you're looking into getting a RetroTank 5X, you probably don't even need the de-jitter at all. You could just do a standard RGB mod bypass, whatever you want to call it for it. Whereas the one chip O2, you don't need anything to get RGB. You could do something like add the 375 ohm resistors to drop the brightness. There's a whole page on the website about that. So you can get the brightness to a better value and the colors don't seem as washed out. That's super simple. And in fact, I'm going to eventually do a video on why that's a thing and all that stuff. But I'll leave a link that that's a simple way to do it. But you don't really need to bypass a Super Nintendo. It's something that if it's important to you, if you are chasing the sharpest signal, it's probably something that's worth it. But if you already are getting a mini that has the very high quality solution in there, maybe just leave the other one stock so you could compare and contrast. 
just food for thought. Your consoles do whatever you want. Doing the bypass doesn't hurt it. I'm just trying to save you a little bit of money. Um, but to talk about the other things that you've mentioned, you were talking about how on Bordy's GitHub, he mentioned installing different resistors on the board for the one chips versus the juniors. And that's because of that's because of the brightness levels. And the reason Voltar doesn't have that on his website is because Voltars are all pre-made. So you buy the one for the mini, it's got the mini's resistors on them. You buy the one for the, the one chip, it's got those. And so it's not even worth mentioning. Um, whereas I believe Bordy, there are sellers who sell them and they should be labeling them for which console. But if you're going to make your own, that's why Bordy added that to the GitHub. Change the components on the board itself in order to match the console you'll be installing them into. Um, also, you mentioned that um, Voltar's board doesn't have a jumper for TTL sync anymore. Voltar figured out the, uh, the perfect combination of resistors so that it'll work safely with all the cables that you could use on it any any well-made cable so you don't need to worry about it anymore it's just safe to use as is it's a pretty neat find so i would just i wouldn't even worry about it if you use the voltar board um and as far as doing other things like the c11 cap and and doing all of the stuff i would absolutely do all of that on the mini because the mini is a great console but it's not something that outputs all of the features that a normal Super Nintendo would. So taking the time to mod all that stuff, I'd even change the voltage regulator for the white line fix and, you know, even add some thermal paste, even though it doesn't even get hot enough, just a little dab, you know, on the, uh, on the heat shielding. I mean, I would just take the time to really restore that thing because you're in it anyway. But once again, you know, I have a couple of Super Nintendos here. I've had many over the years, but I have a handful left. And I do have one that's completely been recapped. It's got a new voltage regulator in it, but it's stock just so I can get footage of what a stock Super Nintendo looks like. And very often it's hard to tell the difference. So if you want something for archival purposes, this is what an original one chip O2 looks like, you know, or if you just want to save some money, maybe don't mod the one chip, but you know, if you're nuts like me and you just want the sharpest signal all the time, of course, go for it. But um, anyway, thanks very much for the kind words. And uh, you also recommended something called Rare Voss by Amagang Brewery, which is somewhere in New York for beer. So yeah, I'll uh, I'll definitely give it a try. I like um, all kinds of beers, the, not the super hoppy kind, but anything else. So thanks for the recommendation. Louis F96 or Luis, I'm sorry. Uh, please let me know which one it is. I want to make sure to try my best to get people's names right. I never do. I'm the worst, but my intention is always to get them right. Uh, anyway, they have a question about the monitors used in 90s arcade cabinets. How do they compare to a BVM or PVM? Would they be equal in quality or something between a consumer CRT and a PVM? So arcade monitors are essentially consumer-grade TVs that have RGB wired directly to them. So they're essentially better than consumer-grade CRTs, but if you RGB mod yours, they're pretty much identical. And on top of that, there's been a few tube transplants over the years, including the ones at Brooklyn Video Games, where they had the original arcade monitor in that was faded and burned in. And uh, whoever was hanging out down there, I think Jose at least once, found a TV on the side of the road that happened that he happened to know used the same tube as that arcade cabinet. So he did a tube transplant. And, you know, it's not easy. You have to know how to work on arcade machines and stuff like that. 
that. But I challenge anybody to figure out which of the machines in that store has the original arcade CRT and which one has the consumer TV one. It's, it's that close. Now, as far as comparing them to a PVM or a BVM, I do want to make my answer very clear in that a consumer-grade CRT that's in excellent condition, that's been recapped and RGB modded, will look much better than any beat-up PVM or BVM. Uh, But if you're talking about the question of, let's hypothetically say you have two brand-new in-the-box monitors that came off the assembly line and you travel back in time to when they came back off the assembly line so they're brand-new, PVMs and BVMs have more detail. Uh, And everything about them is a step up in sharpness, detail, color representation, calibration, because they were designed as as precision tools. They weren't really designed to watch TV on and to play video games on. And in fact, I bet you if you talk to anybody that worked on the BVM team in the 90s and told them that we're using it to play old video games, they'd think we were insane because they were some of them were up to like thirty, forty thousand dollars each at the time. Now, is it better? That's completely up to you. And a a weird example that I always use is that, for me, the only time I played Neo Geo growing up was in the arcades, never at home. And other consoles I played at home, and we had, you know, whatever cheap TVs were available at the time. So I I probably played across a wide variety of TVs growing up. Uh, Some of them used Trinitron tubes, and some of them used, you know, the other types, the Shadow Mask. So when I ended up playing... Things like my favorite games, Super Metroid and A Link to the Past on a PVM, it looked awesome. It looked like a sharper version of what I used to play when I was a kid, you know, whenever there was a Sony or some kind of Trinitron TV in front of me. But when I played Neo Geo on a PVM or a BVM with their super high line counts, it didn't look right because that's not how my eyes saw them over the years. Now, of course, this is 100% preference. There is no right answer to this. Neo Geo looks amazing on PVMs. It just looked weird to me. And another example I like to give is that um, I had a couple of BVMs of different line counts. One was a 600 line count or uh, maybe higher than that. It looked incredible. And then I have one that's a 1,000 TVL that in my eyes, sometimes doesn't look as good because you can't see as much of the uh, the CRT's mask over it. So it almost feels like you're playing on a strange flat panel sometimes, not in all scenarios. So my eyes often prefer to look at a medium line count monitor, not the highest line count, when you're looking at a 20-inch size. Now, the bigger the size you get, the more space between and all that stuff. So that was just a really long way of saying there is no best CRT. There is no, you know, this looks better. It's what looks best to you. And my strong, strong recommendation is always, if you're really into retro games and you have the space for it, get a CRT, any CRT, and go from there. If you don't live in the middle of a city and you get a free CRT that's RF only, you could have a perfectly good experience with many different consoles. If you get in the consoles that have really good stereo audio, you'd probably want to find one with at least a composite input and two speakers. And you might not ever need to go past that. If you find a CRT that's not beat up, that's in good condition, you could absolutely love that and never have to worry about anything else. Or you could, if you're a tech, you could RGB mod it and get a crazy good picture out of it and never need anything better. But some people's eyes just really prefer PVMs and BVMs. And some people like to collect weird old equipment like me. So 
I just want to make sure that I'm clear about, you know, I I didn't think about this a lot over the years. And for the first few years I was doing retro RGB, I'd say things like the best monitor or, I, you know, I'll only use a PVM. And I never put it into context. Uh, and I, that's what I'm trying to do right now in that if I had a choice between gaming these 16-bit consoles that I love on a flat panel or a CRT, I would always pick any CRT over a flat panel, at least now, someday I'm sure we're going to have some crazy scalers that are the best, um, that would might would be the best for reasons like ease of use, you don't have to lug giant CRTs, you don't have to worry about cap replacements, but as of now, as of today when I'm recording this, I'll always choose a CRT over a flat panel, um, and I don't care which one it is, as long as it's not, you know, burned in, beat up with, you know, as long as it's not a, a total turd, I would always choose that, so hopefully I... I explained that correctly. It doesn't really seem like the exact question you were asking, but uh, hopefully it was good enough. Well, that's it for this time. As always, thanks so much to everybody that participates in these. I do have a lot of fun doing them. And if you're new to all this, ask any question you have in the latest Q&A post, wherever it is that you support. So I can't really go back through older support posts. So wherever it is, Floatplane, Patreon, or right on the YouTube subscription service, uh, just ask right there and I will read through your questions the next week. And if I miss it, it is never on purpose. Sometimes Patreon randomly loses questions. I've talked about this before. And sometimes I just... Uh, forget them and accidentally delete it in post. I actually I answer it, but then something gets messed up. So if I missed your question, please re-ask it. It was never intentional. Uh, and as always, thanks so much to everybody that supports. I'll see you next week.